Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Tom Minch. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks, Richard. Will you tell our listeners how to spell your last name? It's a cool last name. <laughs> it's a German last name. You spell it M-U-E-N-C-H. And Tom is um, lives in Idaho. He is um, coming home from a camping trip on a weekend and um, stopped at my home in Salt Lake City on a cold, rainy Sunday day in, in June. And then um, his wife and kids are close by, and then he's on his way to Idaho. But um, Tom, like many of my guests, reached out to me in a moment of great courage and sent me an email, and I'm always glad and honored to get these emails. I keep them confidential, um, but this one is turning into a podcast, but I'll read one section f- from Tom's email. I guess my objective for reaching out is not is not to say that recovery isn't possible, but to share in the pain of those who are still struggling despite their efforts. I've listened to your podcast hoping to hear from someone who is still struggling, at times in my pain, I felt frustrated that only people, that the only people we seem to hear from are those who had a story to tell of healing. It's amazing to hear other people's stories of healing, and I've needed that, but I also need to hear from someone who's willing to go there in the pain, the feeling I'm feeling right now. Then it hit me. Maybe I can be that person. When prompted When prompted to reach out, I kept thinking that maybe one day I'll be clean again or sober for so long. Then I'll contact Richard. Then I'll have a story to tell. Then I'll have a, but I have a story to share now. So I admire that part of Tom's brave email because Tom's working on a pornography addiction. He's working as keeping his marriage together. He has same sex attraction and he's walking really complicated roads um, the very best way he knows how, and but his story's not over. Um, you're still working on your pornography addiction. Yeah, I am. And um, I, I, when I served as a YSA bishop, so many great men and women were working on that challenge, and I recognize that many married people likewise are. And I think this is a podcast. I think Tom is a message for those of you that aren't you know, don't have that solved, um, that need to hear from somebody that also doesn't have it solved, but wants to solve it, wants to keep their marriage together, um, and, and is talking about the hope they still have, even in the middle of the journey. And so Tom is already one of my new heroes for coming on a podcast and talking about his life in such an honest, vulnerable way. But I think he has an ability then to heal others and give hope. And perhaps even sharing his story with you helps Tom move forward and continue to make progress. Um, Is that okay for an introduction, Tom? That's perfect. Um, We said a prayer together, and we pray that a spirit will be here. Um, This is kind of sacred ground when someone walks into my home and is willing to trust me to help their short story reach you. But you're joining us with this sacred ground. Um, Talk about um, just a little more bio. Tom served a mission in South Africa, a place I'd love to go sometime in my life, Tom. 
Um, he is 33. He currently has a job as a land surveyor, I believe. And drafter, yeah. And drafter has three kids. The oldest is seven, is married. And Tom's been working on pornography for a long time um, and um, still does not have that solved. Tom also has has a career that has taken a lot of turns, and he is still not exactly sure what he's going to do in his career. And I think culturally, we kind of create a lot of expectations that about age 21, you know exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And in reality, that doesn't always happen for people. And that's okay. And so Tom is somebody that at 33 is still working to figure that out. And maybe that's just what God thought he would be doing at this age. And maybe that's part of his journey is continuing to learn about him and learn from different jobs to know exactly what is the right path for him. And so those of you that are kind of also on that road, I think Tom um, has some insights there. Um, let's talk about pornography. When was your first exposure to pornography? I think my first exposure to pornography was when I was about 13 or 14 years old. I was kind of scared the first time I saw it. Um, but I remember going away from that experience wanting to see it again because I was curious. And it just it didn't make sense to me. But at the same time, I wanted to go back to it. But I also knew... Um, just from what I'd been taught growing up, that it wasn't something that I should be involved. Curious is probably pretty good term to use there. I yeah. think you frame that pretty, or you recognize right and wrong, but those are curiosity. Yeah. Um, did it end before your mission, or was it something that occurred right up until your mission? So um, I... It's a little cloudy um, for a couple of years, um, how that continued. I remember um, I remember at one point wanting, not wanting to be the only person that had seen it and so wanting to show it to a friend, um, and that actually didn't end up happening. Um, but I remember that, that desire to keep going back to it and... Um, and I found a way. I always found a way. And I started keeping these secrets. But I do remember that that pattern going up until my mission, pretty close to it even. Um, I think I was probably 17 when I first told anyone about it. So Who did you first tell? I told my bishop. And it took everything I had to walk up to him and tell him I have something to say. I remember that experience very vividly, and he was perfect about it. He said, come right in my office. He looked really busy, but he said, come right in. I remember telling him and just feeling, feeling overwhelmingly grateful that I was able to tell him and free, I guess, but also the shame set in and knowing going back home to my parents. And um, so I remember that day I took a, a long drive on my own just to think I like to go to the mountains and 
Did you talk to your parents before your mission, or was it just between you and your priesthood leader? I did. Um, I did tell my parents about it. I do remember, if I remember right, my bishop actually called my mom and talked to her before I had talked to her. And I was really bothered by that. Um, and I was bothered that my the trust that I had in my bishop was somewhat broken that day. That's how I remember feeling, but it's been a long, long time. time. So I don't know if it exactly went that way. Yeah, and I'm not, I certainly wasn't a perfect bishop, but I think in that situation, I would have asked your permission yeah. to talk to your mom or potentially and said, would do you want to involve your parents? And if you said no, I'd honor that. If yeah. you said yes, then I'd work with you to figure out the best way to involve them. Yeah. Like bring them into the bishop's office and let us all meet or letting you tell them or getting permission. Because I do think parents, particularly um, with pornography pre-mission, have a role that can be very helpful, maybe post-mission too. Um, I I didn't do that too much with the YSAs. I didn't know the YSAs' parents. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and they were at a different stage working through pornography. Um, you served a mission in South Africa. Yes. Um, did you have any challenges with pornography on your mission? One I of the challenge, one of the things is ex access is so limited. Uh huh. But if it's okay, just share with our listeners how that worked out for you on your mission. I am really grateful that my mission experience did not involve pornography. I think I saw images once when we went to like an internet cafe to do our Monday emails. Um, and it just surprised me that somebody would be out in the open public where everyone can see them and viewing pornography. But it was something that I kind of wanted to catch a glimpse, but then I remember it diffusing pretty quickly and... Yeah, on my mission, I I look back on that and I'm so grateful because I know that some missionaries don't have that same experience, that pornography was a part of their mission. And I don't know if I would have lasted the full two years. I probably wouldn't have um, if I had had any access. So I'm really grateful those two years I felt... And I actually, getting towards the end of my mission, I was like, this is, the Lord wanted me to go on a mission. I went, and now he has blessed me that the pornography addiction has left. I didn't have the desire for it anymore. Um, and that's what I felt coming off the mission. And within two weeks of coming home, I was back into pornography what happened there? Because that is um, that story is a common story. Maybe not two weeks, but mm -hmm. a lot of the people that I talk to about pornography at the YSA level have a similar story that started before their mission. They were generally fine on their mission. They resolved never to have that problem again. And here they were talking to me about pornography. Yeah. And, and it was really hard on them because they felt like they were back at square one, that everything they'd done was for naught. That's exactly how I felt every time. And every single day that I went back to it, it was like, I and I'm a perfectionist type, and so it was all or nothing. It was like, I've, I've got to kick this or else 
Like, I'm going to hell. Like, that's just, that's what I thought. And what happened? Was after it, my mission. You know, what happened? F- and I'm not being critical of you. Is there any way to explain that to our listeners? Why within two weeks you had slipped up? That is a great question. Um, as soon as I got home, I went back to school for BYU-Idaho, and I did some church history, a church history tour. It was like a month-long tour for church and American history, which was amazing. But it was on that trip that I had my laptop from before my mission. And, you know, Richard, I cannot say exactly what happened. I just know that I slipped back into it. And I remember finding a place where, and it was while everyone was asleep and just started looking at images. And I thought that at that point I was like, I've, I've lost it all. My whole mission was, wasn't worth it because here I am back to square one again. And so it took the, sh- it was the shame that took hold of me at that point. It wasn't necessarily wanting to to view all the time, but it was the shame that that brought me down to where I tried to cover that up, cover up the shame. So I don't know if that answers it your does. question. Um, did was it kind of a one time thing, and then you're okay for a while, or once you looked at it once, that time did that just open the floodgates, or that's how I felt? It opened the floodgates. The way I described it in my mind or to other people was like the scripture that says like a dog turning to its vomit type of thing that always stuck with me. And I was like, that's how I feel. Like, why would I do that? But I did. And I liked it. And it was just this opening gate for me to, to go back into it. Yeah. That's pretty honest, Tom. And I, you know, I don't have a lot of training in this area, but I've given it a lot of thought and met with people. I just think shame is Satan's greatest tool. I, yeah, that's sin and messing up is what happened. But somehow, and this is for you listeners, if you can take those slip-up moments and sort of say, okay, I'm going to step back from the moment and try to understand I'm still a good person. This doesn't mean I'm back to square one. doesn't mean that every all the work I've done is for naught and I should just throw in the towel and try to make that a learning experience to say, and just say, shame says I am bad versus I did something bad. And so, yeah, I've messed up here. There's no question about that. But let's try to look at this as a positive learning experience versus a back to square one, no hope. And we don't talk about that too much, but I think, I just think, um, you know, Right now in your life, you're the closest you've ever been to permanently solving this. <laughs> We're going to get to that. I just think that even though you've, you're at 33 and this has been going on for almost two decades, it's, it's, you're still, you're, I would, I honestly believe you're not the furthest away you've ever been from solving this. You're the closest you've ever been to solving this. And everything you're doing is just bringing you closer to solving this versus bringing you further away. Yeah. The way I've I've kind of felt about it is that it used to be this thing that well I guess how I can describe it is that now when I think about 
my addiction. I'm on a journey. Before it was just this. It was a it was more of a literal black or white, like you've messed up, you're going to hell. I don't know why I felt that way, but I don't know if that I can't remember my parents teaching me that, but I must have internalized that growing up. And so it was always this I've messed up. I've viewed pornography again. I'm going to hell. But then there would be this little bit of hope. It was like, no, you can keep trying. Okay, so I keep trying. But then I messed up again. And so I, it was hundreds of times going back to that same feeling of hopelessness and feeling like everything that happens to me that's negative is a punishment from God. I That's how I felt. I don't know if that's something that a lot of people feel, but I did. And so it was just more shame, more shame. And But now I see this as a journey, a continuum, not even just this in particular, but this life. It's not just from the beginning to the end. Um, and I know I've been taught that in church, but this is just a small blip in the whole, in the eternal, I don't even know how you say it. I was, I was always told it was a race, as a race, and that means you get to the end, but I don't feel that way anymore. It's a journey, and this has been part of my journey, and yeah, every part of it. So. Do you, I like that. Do you have, what are your hopes regarding pornography? The future, what, and sort of, yeah, what is your hope? That's a really good question. My, for the longest time, my hope had been, of course, that I would just one day overcome it and that it would not be a part of my life anymore. And it seemed like over the years that that hope diminished and that that wasn't a reasonable thing to hope for anymore. Like, good luck, Tom. <laughs> but it has become this hope that, that I can get through the next day, that I can get through the next temptation. And even to be able to learn from each time that it happens. It's a really tricky spot to be in, Richard, to have this in the back of my mind, knowing that this is a this is a real sin and that God is not pleased with viewing pornography. But at the same time, trying to be okay with myself enough to live my life. And to move on, even though this thing keeps haunting me, it's been a really tricky spot. I've gone to a lot of really dark places because of that internal pull between the two. And my my hope now is that I can, I honestly feel that as I do my very best, whatever that is for me, that... That is why the atonement is there. And I never thought it applied to me. I didn't think the atonement was 
for me or for this addiction because I was too far gone type of thing. But I've come to feel that this is, that Christ is the only way that I can get through this. And those other things that are out there, the programs and the fellowship is really good. And it's, those are things that God has placed in my path to help me through it. Um, I don't understand why I still have this after everything I've been through. And I don't want to be this victim, like, woe is me. I've done every last thing that there is to overcome pornography, and I still have a problem. And I definitely go there in my mind multiple times, maybe even a day. But I have to remind myself that there is a much bigger picture to all of this. I don't know what it all is, but I've been open to that possibility that there is a lot, a lot larger picture to all of this. And one day I'll, I'll know what it is. A lot of hope in what you just said in that last segment, Tom. And sort of a realistic hope, given your situation that I like. Hope is my favorite word in the gospel. If I am your friend or your priesthood leader or was in one of these support groups, I think that's what I'd want to give you. I think that's what the atonement or Christ's mission gives you. Yeah. That's the only thing that's kept me alive, that's kept me going. I guess I recognize with an addiction that agency is, I don't know how much of this is, your agency has been, I don't know if you like that idea, but, you know, just that your agency is somewhat muted with an addiction. I I don't, but I still want to give you hope that, and I really believe this, that eventually you'll, you'll put this behind you. That's, that's where I've really struggled is, um, Having been taught that at some point in my life, I kind of took to it and I was like, oh, maybe this wasn't, maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's really not my fault. But then there's always in the back of my mind, no, it is, Tom. You chose every step of the way to get to where you're at. So it's one of those things that I... I really struggle with. Talk about being married. Um, did you talk to your wife about your pornography challenge, whatever, per, you know, problem before you're married? Yeah. So my wife and I were kind of going over the timeline of things. And um, it was about the third date that we went on that I told her that I have a pornography problem. And I had told previous girlfriends so I kind of was okay with telling her that and just getting it out and like, hey, do you want to go, you know, go further with this? Um, I wanted to be open and honest about that. Um, of course, I didn't go into detail. And I don't think at that point I needed to. Um, it is kind of hard to know because for her, it may feel like now that she didn't know what she was getting into. And she honestly didn't. Um, so it is a tricky thing to know, like, how much do I, you know, go into this? But, um, I told her after the first few dates, um, and then 
she was supportive. She was there for me. And she has been this entire time. Did you believe that getting married, um, I mean, there's sort of an inference that becoming sexually active ends pornography, you know, mm-hmm. and that this is sort of a single person's problem. And once they get married and become sexually active, that pornography ends. Did you believe that or hope that or been taught that? I had I had heard from others that this that was not a case the the pornography would still be there so I was kind of prepared for that I had been going to the um the church's 12 step program for a few years before we got married and so I felt prepared that no this doesn't just go away um I had hoped that just like my mission that things would would get better, and they did before we got married. Um, but it didn't stay that way. And I try to go back and think, you know, where? It's always where did I go wrong? But where, where was the turning point when I decided that it was okay for me to go back to that again? Of course, it's not okay. But in my mind, I had to decide that at some point. Like after we're married, I had to decide that I can look again. And um, the best I can can come up with is just the the life circumstance. You, I get into this. Um, we're we're past the honeymoon stage. Everything's kind of leveled out, and now I get comfortable. But at the same time, I'm stressed with school or whatever work. And so a combination of those two things was where I start. I started looking again. Did you tell your wife? Um, not right away. It was really difficult to do that. And I've, um, I kept secrets from her for quite a while. And if she ever did kind of hint at it or try to get it out of me, I would tell her the least possible truth that I could (laughs) about it just to get her, just to satisfy her enough not to ask me about it, basically. How long did that last until you finally kind of leveled with her? That was um, about two, two to three years into our marriage. I can't remember exactly, Um, but that's when uh, she got pregnant with my son and we decided we need to do something about this. And I finally came out with most everything. I don't remember how truthful I was, but we knew that it was time to do something more. And that's when we started the Life Start program. Um, and you've been to a few programs. Tell our listeners the different programs you've been to. And and I think there's one in particular you like. Will you and share with our listeners if that's true why you like that one? Yeah. What I would say is so I've been to multiple of the church's 12 step groups. That's one that I've done more long term. Um, after my mission, I started right away um, with those and once a week for three or two or three years. And I also got involved in a program at BYU Idaho through their counseling center. They had a men's program um, where they would teach us things about addiction, but then also try to create that camaraderie with other men, um, which was helpful. 
but I remember times just feeling totally lost and and helpless too and just leaving the group and um but then also the a lot of times where I was working the programs and being really active that way um so I did that and then I also did I started personal counseling up there um which was a great resource to help me get through some of these thoughts and feelings that I was having um then we started after we got married we did the life star program and that brought me a lot of hope and i think i think what gave me the most hope was knowing that they were also providing a safe place for my wife to be to open up and share her part too because mm -hmm. i knew that i was what i was doing was hurting her and so that was comforting to me to the point where I could work on myself and not just always be thinking about how I'm affecting my wife. But I knew she had support and I could tell her things and that she could go to them. Um, so the Lifestar program was really helpful in a lot of ways. Um, and there's so much, I mean, there's so much to, to tell about it and each one of the pamphlets or the booklets and all the work that we did. Um, I know that going through that program helped my wife and I become better parents for one. Um, and I, I hope that that can, can show one day. There was a point during Lifestar that I got to a really low place though. And I don't, like I've told you before, I don't, I can't say that it was because of Lifestar and I, I doubt that it was, but I think it was the fact that I was still struggling with pornography. And I got to a point where I was, I was worse in the addiction than I ever was before. And I started like, um, with the same sex attraction, I started reaching out to other men and in kind of flirty ways. And, um, and I, I also went to a same sex attraction group in Rexburg, which gave me a lot of hope and it was good at first. Um, but then they, um, they encouraged healthy touch which at first I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm like healthy touch with other men. Like, I don't know if that's a real thing or if it's possible. Um, but I trusted the leader and I participated in some of that healthy touch, you know, hugs and a little bit of a back rub while we're, ha but it just, it got, it quickly led to other things with one of the guys in the group. And we started sexting, and I just, I was ready to throw in the towel and just take my life. I couldn't stand the thought of having to tell my wife that I had been involved in stuff like that. What kept you from dying by suicide? Um, I had, I had downed a whole bunch of pills um, right before one of my groups, and... I started acting really weird during the group and they could tell something was wrong. My counselor took me aside and I was able to come out to him and say, hey, this is what I did. Um, 
and he helped me get to my wife and talked with us both and then I went to the emergency room that's a it's an embarrassing thing to I mean you think about it's like well yeah you saved your life but when you're walking into the emergency room telling them I'm suicidal it's a it's an embarrassing feeling and and yeah they they kept me overnight there and and got it out of my system and just watched me and i think it was more of a soft attempt the more i think about it i'd like to say that for some reason in my story that i was really serious about it but i don't think i wanted to are you suicidal now i felt suicidal feelings um I can't say that right now I am, but I've definitely felt them again. But I feel like I'm in a much safer place right now. I I guess more of what I feel now is or it's more of thoughts that I have. Um reminders of the shame and everything that takes me in that path. What would you say to other people that are suicidal? What would I say? I've often thought of this question, especially listening to some of your podcasts. I just, what would I say? I mean, I have a very close family member that we almost lost this year because of suicide. And it seemed like at the time, maybe I was a help to him and being able to reach out to him. And all I could do, because I've been through it, and I knew that I didn't want people telling me, this is what you should do, this is, you really need to get this help, or this kind of, I didn't like that. And so I remember feeling that way with this particular person and saying, you know what, all they need is for me to be there for them. And I left work for a few days and went and and stayed with him. And... That's all it was. I just stayed with him. And he was able to come out of it, um, not fully, but it was that interaction, I feel like, that helped because he was, he was close. I love that. I love how simple your formula is to be with somebody and how you recognize, since you've been in that space, your ability to go to um, and help people. In My first space. thought was I want to... I want to help fix him too. And then I'm like, you know how this feels. You know, you don't, he doesn't want that. All he needs is someone to be there for him to know that he will, that will love him no matter what, no matter what it is. Even if he tells you the worst, most terrible things to just be there for him. Yeah, I'm glad you are alive, Tom. I, I re well, we both recognize that there's challenges in your life and your marriage. You haven't solved pornography. You're working on your career. It's sort of life. Your life is different than you thought it would be the day you stepped off that plane from South Africa. Yeah, it's a lot different. It's a lot different, brother. But I sense your great heart. I sense you humility. I don't sense a rebellious spirit about you. I just sense someone who's 
doing the very best they can. Yeah, you have regret with some of the decisions you've made. But I think, but you know this, but sometimes people that are suicidal don't know that, you know, there's so many people whose lives would be negatively impacted if you were gone. Your wife, your kids, family members, other people that you could have been there to help like this person you just helped. And so... My wife and kids were the only thing that kept me alive multiple times. I just couldn't do that to them. Good. And I remember an experience where I I had been feeling a lot of those feelings and thinking about going through with something, it scared me. But at the same time, it was my only option to get away from the pain because that couldn't be more painful than what I was going through with the addiction in my mind. Um, but a friend of mine from school committed suicide and it wasn't until I stood there next to him, next to his body. And I actually looked at him and realized that I could do the same thing. And that's where I started to get really scared is that in my mind, something switched and it was okay that he did it somehow. Of course it wasn't, but it was okay that he did it. So now it almost gave me permission to do the same thing. And I envied him because he was free now in my mind, of course, and through my beliefs. He was free from whatever he was struggling with. And I thought that was the only answer, but it wasn't. It's pretty honest. You get a pretty honest award, Tom. <laughs> um, and I think that's a great Christ-like attribute. I think it's a great insight into your character. And I, I don't look at pornography as the core of you. I think this is something that's become part of your life. But the core of you is is that, mm. and it's empathy, and it's kindness, and it's goodness, and it seems like a desire to do the right thing. And that actually brings me to my, to the next program that Good. we did, because that's where that switched for me. Um, because I was suicidal during this Lifestar program, I went to an outpatient therapy program for Lifestar that was a week-long intensive um, which was good as well. But then um, things still weren't progressing and I was still really struggling. So I, we were told about this place called Desert Solace. It's an, an inpatient addiction rehab. And we felt really strongly that that's where I needed to be. And so we made it happen fairly quick within a couple of weeks of hearing about it I was there and um, I was to stay there for 90 days I ended up staying for an extra 30 so 120 days there um, and there's so much I could say about what it was like and my whole experience there and that's just something that you have to experience but my overall takeaway from that was that I actually came to love myself while I was there 
And I realized that that love of self is the key. It was the key to turn off the addiction. I guess that's the way I can put it. Because as I discovered that love for myself, and I always thought, oh, I need to love everyone else and not worry about myself and not talk myself up or whatever. But it was me coming to know who my true self was and that the pornography was not me. Just like you were saying, it's not my core. It's not part of my core. And I had to change some beliefs these faulty beliefs that I grew up with that from no fault of anyone that I realize now, I used to blame other people, my parents, my church leaders, but I realized that it was no fault of anyone else, but it was just the way that I interpreted things that were said. And I created this belief system that everything that happened to me was filtered through that and I had to change those. And they weren't there to brainwash me or to change. Um, they weren't there to change me. But at the same time, they were there to help open up the, to make the transformation possible. And I, I went that whole time without viewing pornography. And it felt great. And it wasn't just that, but the, the best feeling... Um, closest to heaven I've ever felt is to know who I really am inside. And I felt like that was just opened enough for me to see that there is something more there. Who are you inside? Who am I? I'm love. I'm everything that has to do with peace and joy and all of th all of those good things reside in me no matter what i choose to do and then i realize that if that's true then that means the same for everyone that i see and that i interact with and it's almost like you take a seed of a plant or a tree or whatever and within that seed, it already contains every single part that it needs to become what it is meant to be. It's not that the seed has to go out and get other things to become something greater. It's already contained within that seed. And I realized that perfection, as much as I did the checklist of things my whole life to try to become perfect wasn't about that at all that perfection already resides inside of me and all it takes is for me to god wants me to just realize it and the only way for me to realize my perfection or goodness or um, basic good nature is to go through the experiences in life. And that in itself is invaluable for me. And yes, <clears throat> these programs were expensive. And there were times where I felt like I had just spent a bunch of worthless money on these programs and money that we didn't have. 
and especially going to rehab, it's expensive. But coming away with that experience and that um, that one bit, of, it's not even a knowledge, but it's a it's an internal knowing that was worth all the money that we ever had to to put into those programs and it was it came from it came from god how does god feel about you god loves me god he really loves me as much as i try to tell him that he doesn't sometimes <laughs> it's crazy and this will get me a little choked up but i look at my kids And I honestly, at the end of the day, don't care what they've done. Sometimes I get caught up in the tantrums. I get caught up in the silly, th in my mind, what a silly thing that is to throw fit about or to, to get so focused on. But at the end of the day, I love them with a pure love that... that I can't describe. And if I can love someone as much as I love those little kids, then I think that God can love me so much more than that, despite all of the choices that I've made. I love that segment, Tom. You wrote it in your letter. It says, I discovered self-love at Desert Solace. And I, it's interesting you said something we're taught to love one another, and that's certainly a message that's in our church, in our society, part of our doctrine, but we don't talk about loving ourselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like Puritan values, we don't look inward or say kind things about ourselves. We're so careful about pride and lifting ourselves up, but that's not what you're talking about here. Self-love is, I love, because I, I think then if we love ourselves, we are more likely to feel God's love for us because we conclude he can, he loves us too. And I love your quick answer when I said, how does God feel about you? And you didn't say that with arrogance. You just said that with absolute conviction. He loves me. And listeners, if God can love somebody, and I don't want to make Tom sound like a bad guy here because he's not, but Tom's got a pornography addiction in church ranking of sins, that's a bad one. <laughs> um, and I hope that's okay saying that. Um, and so you're, you know, to, to, to sort of be willing to talk about this and solve it and be open with your wife and counselors and bishops, to me, you have a, you know, that's a sign of your heart, your desire to do what's right. But loving yourself seems so fundamental to our doctrine. I love where you talked about loving your children mm. and the way God loves us. Um, so listeners, if you don't love yourself, that's one of the key messages of Tom. You've got to love yourself. We have to love ourselves with our weaknesses, our flaws. There's lots of reasons, you know, our bodies aren't the way they should be on compared to covers of magazines compared to someone on Instagram, we have to learn to love ourselves now. We can't just say we'll love ourselves later when this or this or this happens. I think we have to learn to love ourselves now. Yeah. Um, 
because then I think we love others better and we can feel God's love for us better. And it's, and it's one of the key things we've, one of the podcasts we did is with Joe Pearson and his wife, episode 190. And Joe was like you, great man. Um, and by the time he came on the podcast, he had put his pornography challenge behind him. But it was a brutal road that almost cost their marriage. But Joe sh shares in episode 190, the most transforming thing for him to solve pornography long term was one day he just felt God's love in a way he'd never felt that before for him. And that flipped something for him, that love of God, um, which helped him love himself, was a key moment in his journey to, to solve it. And I don't think Joe solved pornography that day. I think Joe solved it with all the work he did, including the setbacks that led to that moment. Yeah. And so that, that moment was possible because of Joe's continued effort to try to make progress, even though he felt back he was to square one at times. And I've spent money, I've gone to this and that, and you've done this, Tom. I think that's where the lies of Satan says, you'll never solve this. You'll keep relapsing. Look at all the money, look at all the time, look at all the pain in your wife, you know, and just label you with things that God would never label you like. And I think his biggest tool, yes, the pornography in the first place is part of his tool, but the bigger tool is to keep you in shame yeah. and keep you out of hope and keep you feeling you're outside of God's love. And you know that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that that is the core purpose of Satan. And that we look at all of these challenges that everybody faces, all these different types of things, and I think that it all comes back to that, that Satan in his many different ways of, of dealing with men, that his purpose is to promote the shame and bring us down to a point where we don't love ourselves. And... Yeah, I guess I, I'm I not agree sure where that. I was going. <laughs> I like that. Talk about your good wife, who I briefly met. Um, and when you wrote me this note, it's just full of love for your wife. Um, and she's walking a unique road. I love that she found community with other spouses and the need for that. And I would guess I, I the older I get, the more I recognize I've been trading emails and I've people need community sometimes in a marriage of someone's to walk the same road, mm -hmm. in this case, be the spouse of a husband who's got a pornography challenge. Um, just give her a shout out or any things that, not that it's her problem to solve for you, it's your problem to solve, but what? just give her a shout out or what she's done that's helpful or what it's, she's done that helps you feel like it's worth staying in the marriage and staying alive. <clears throat> I have been so impressed with her and she's not perfect. We, I, I don't want to paint this picture for everyone that, um, I guess in my mind, I, I always hear these other people share their stories and I think, oh, they've had this, this perfect recovery or this perfect life or everything lined up exactly the way it should. Um, well, his wife was 
perfect in all these ways. So that's why it worked out for them type of thing. She's had so many of her own struggles and I am so grateful. All I could ask for her was to just give, give it a chance and to just keep trying because I didn't, I could not in my own, in myself re, uh, relate to her what I was going through. I could tell her what I was doing, but I couldn't tell her how I f really felt inside and help her understand that. And so it was her having the faith to to keep going through all these programs. She, I wouldn't have blamed her one bit for leaving me nine years ago but she stayed with me and the the key thing i guess for that is that she chose to work on herself she chose not to make this about me about fixing me and about this being just my problem she chose to look inside of herself and and work on her own stuff. And she has transformed. I, I'm i just amazed at who she is now compared to when we started all of this. And I wouldn't have wanted her to go through all of this, but because she did, and because of what we've been through, she is, she's really special. What a tribute. And I can't say that We'll stay together forever. I don't know how long she can handle me dealing with this. And, but I, this, I know that she has given it everything she has and has become a better person because of it. What a tribute to both of you. I'm, I remember Elders Corn President in a talking about, um, you know, as spouses, we can't become each other's saviors. Only the savior can be our savior, and and we can just do the best we can. But I love what she knew she couldn't solve your pornography problem, um, and it wasn't her her responsibility to solve it. But what she could do is just be continue to grow and be a better person. Exactly, things that were in her control, and and be helpful for you, and be willing to go to. Um, these different groups together to give her tools, better understanding. Yes. So I think in some ways, uh, this is a beautiful love story. It's <laughs> not the kind that we see typically on TV, um, but there's beauty in this marriage. Yeah. And it's a love story. And it's not the love story you thought you'd have when you stepped off that plane from South Africa. Yeah, definitely not. But in a way, it's a love story the things you're learning and the ways you're growing together. I think you have some great paydays down the road with the hard work you're doing to make your marriage succeed. The communication, the work you're doing, I think it makes you better parents. I think it gives you better skills. You would never say, well, I'm going to go for a pornography problem to be a better parent. But as we go through our personal challenges in life and mortal experiences, those refine us in ways, and I think that's part of what the mortal plan is, to be refined in ways that allow us to help others and become 
humbler inside and kinder to other people. And That's something that I've come to realize from all of this, Richard, is that it really isn't about the pornography. And as much as I wanted to think that it was and that as long as I saw that, I'd be okay, it's more, there's so much more to it. And everybody faces their own struggles that are just as or more difficult than what I've been through. And I feel like, I feel like we all struggle with the same, it all comes down to those same things, even though, even though it manifests in a different way, there's pain inside of all of us. There's pain from when we were kids or teenagers, whatever that pain is, what are we using to to cope with it? And this is how I've coped with my pain, my stress. I recognize that now, which I'm grateful for, because before it was just something that I did that was bad. But I just realized that so many people out there are have, are feeling that same pain inside. And as much as I don't want my kids to go through that pain, maybe some of that is necessary to get to where we where God wants us to be. I love that. And I've certainly learned I'm hesitant to put the addiction label on pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to decide if that's an appropriate label for you. But I recognize a lot of people aren't addicted to pornography. Mm. And it starts out curious. I, I like that word. I think there's a curiosity. and But then it can become a coping skill. So it's not often about wanting to break commandments. It's about managing stress, anxiety, escaping a need for connection mm-hmm. in a pretty complex, stressed-out world. It's one of the things that's I tell the, used to tell the why I say is two things that have changed. I said, I'm wired the same way as you are. <laughs> I at your age just didn't have access. Yeah. And there wasn't near as much stress that your age group is managing and anxiety. And and so that's one of those are the two things to me that's really changed between my generation and the YSA generation, and you're closer to that generation. And realizing that gave me much more empathy um, for good people that are walking this road Um, and just why it's such a challenge right now. Um, I've always felt it's peaking with your age group because you 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 will have better skills as priesthood leaders, as fathers, as mothers, if there's mothers working through this or helping others to help the next generation. They'll still have 24-7 access. That's not going to change. It can't get more accessible than it is. Yeah. Um, but I think there'll be more tools and more understanding, and we'll have a way to talk about this. I don't want to normalize pornography, neither do you, but I think we need to normalize talking about it yes. and normalize um, that it's the reality of many people's lives and to take away the shame so we can talk about it. Yeah. And. I recognize I've always felt the why a single people can open up a little easier to the priesthood leaders than the married people that are working on this. And so I worry about the number of married people with a pornography problem that they're not talking to anybody about, their spouse, their bishop, a therapist. And it's just, 
And there, there's so much shame around that, and there's so much potentially to be lost if it's found out. That is a very lonely place to be. And that leads to really scary things sometimes. Yep. And so that's why I really admire you talking. And you've been talking about this for a while. You've been open with your wife before you married, your bishop before you went on your mission. So I I think that's an, an insight to the core of you, Tom, and who you are, that you've been willing to be honest about this challenge in your life. And I think that's a good example. Even though being honest can create setbacks in the short term, I think it's the road to heat. Setbacks meaning it can be hard for a spouse to learn the first time their spouse is a pornography thing. And that can create, you know, obviously a lot of legitimate short-term trauma and pain, but I think it's sometimes the road to healing. Um, I'd like to talk, we're kind of at the hour mark, um, and I'll just share this with our listeners as an overview. Tom, when we talked about his same-sex attraction, every story is different, listeners, and Tom really didn't feel like, you know, a lot of my same-sex attraction or gay guests really felt this was part of them very early. Tom does not feel that way. Um, I'm speaking correct. for Tom here, and he really felt like some of this happened. Um, and he's not even sure if it's completely separate from the pornography. I've generally thought pornography is an insight into sexual orientation, doesn't change it. And so, but I think it can accelerate it. So if you're have some same-sex attraction, and there's a Kinsey skill that's kind of a continuum mm. that perhaps viewing gay porn um, can bring more of that out of you if it's there in the first place. Mm. Um, are you okay with that? I am. Um, it's it's really an interesting topic that I've thought a lot about, and when I hear other people say that you know, they were born with it, I, part of me wants to go there and say, well, me too. I was too. But I don't feel that. And it just, it's just, part of me just wants to fit in with the, maybe the norm or what I think is the norm of um, how that happens for people. But for me, I felt I was um, totally heterosexual even the porn I started viewing was heterosexual and that continued for a long time. I didn't have the desire for um, looking at other men or things in sexual ways. And um, one thing that was taught to me by a counselor that I felt I kind of took to it because it, it felt right to me um, was that I had this, he said, you go from exotic to erotic. So I had this exotic feeling about other men as a teenager. It's like, I wanted to be like them, but I wasn't. I wanted to be the sports guy, but I wasn't. I wanted to know everything about hunting, but I didn't. And maybe I didn't really want to know enough about it to actually do it, but I just wanted to fit in. That's what it came down to. And so it was this exotic feeling like, yeah, I want to be like them. But then it started to turn into an erotic feeling towards men. Um, well, maybe I can get some sort of validation from other men in a sexual way. And um, having had a couple of experiences with other guys as a teenager, that is, that's where it started to shift for me. And it was, that's what I wanted. 
after that. And so I know I don't feel like I was born with it. And I don't feel like I had it since I was five or 10 or, but as a teenager that started to shift and, but I do feel that it's something that I'm going to deal with the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that now. I haven't always been. Why do you think you'll, it'll be part of you for the rest of your life? Because I, f that's a good question. Part of me wants to say because it's, it's this desire I have down to my core, but I don't feel like it was part of my core. I, I'm still really confused about okay. it. I am. And I mean, I'm 33 and I've been through counseling like crazy and I, I haven't been able to figure that out and maybe I won't be able to, but the more time and stress that I put into trying to figure that out or the more I, I feel like I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Great answers, Tom. Um, I recognize every story is different and I think we need to honor everybody's stories, but not necessarily take one story and apply it to others. I think if you're, if, but I think it's good to hear stories. And so it helps those of you that identify as LGBTQ or same sex attraction. I think hearing Tom's story and are there nuggets in there that can help you on your journey? I think it's important to just be open to the option, all the options. Yeah. Because in my mind growing up, it's like I, I, was taught something and I believed it and I stuck to it and it was just a structured, that's the way it's going to be, or that's the way I feel about things. I'm starting to realize that there's so much more that is truth that I've closed myself off from because I've been so stuck on these certain beliefs about whether it's being gay or <clears throat> pornography um, our beliefs about myself or God. So it's helpful for me because I have generally said, you know, that pornography is, an, is a, a lens into someone's sexual orientation, but I want to mend that a little bit because it's possible there's exceptions to that. And it's possible that I have been, and it's part of this nuance that you have to develop, I think, as we get older in life and we hear more stories. And not all stories fit in a nice, tidy box. And mm -hmm. we sometimes create these narratives where we only find stories that fit our worldview. And if someone comes along with a different story, that can be threatening to us. But I think we can just get to the space where we honor everybody's story. So if you're, tr it's, so I'm open that um, pornography has, you know, is a cause of your same-sex attraction, that would be fine. Um, it's not a typical story, but no story is typical. Mm -hmm. And I also like where you said, I think this will be with me for the rest of my life, but I'm not spending a lot of time trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's really smart, I think, because it just, this emotional capital, um, this mental bandwidth you have to deal with, you're not using it to deal with that. And you're just sort of accepting that this is who I am. This is part of my journey. And and I love myself. I'm not going to just start loving myself if my same-sex attraction goes away. Or if I get that killer job and have great financial stability. I'm loving myself now. And I'm telling my story now, even though 
I'm on these long roads that I don't quite know how they'll all figure out because I think most of us are on those long roads um, and we're in the middle of our story and we don't, and if we're honest enough, we don't know all the answers. Yes. And I think that's okay. I think that's part of mortality. I love that you and your wife have the same common goals to keep your marriage together. I asked you that before the podcast knows you answered that so quickly and clearly and I think that's even marriages that struggle at times. If you have common goals that you want to keep them together, the same eternal goals, mortal goals, I think that's a key foundational point that gives you the framework then to make them work and do the, sometimes the hard work that's necessary. We're kind of at the end. Um, other, other things you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't gotten to yet? You know, <clears throat> really the only thing I... At one point, I felt like it was important for me to share, you know, my road with my career and thinking that, you know, life hasn't turned out the way it's supposed to be that way either. And that's, you know, that's a story for another day. It really is. It's But that's it's, true. You, even in your note, you told me you've you mentioned you've lost jobs because you got caught doing yep, pornography. Exactly. That takes a kind of a gutsy thing to share. <laughs> yeah, it's been a rough road that way. And it's hard um, providing for a family and things when stuff like that happens. And it's just interesting how I, I've had in my mind for so long what direction my life would go. And it's gone very different, but in a good way. And I feel like there's no question that God is directed this journey for me. And I've had to look at it that way is that I'm on a journey to, for one, to continue to discover this self-love because sometimes I I don't feel it and I, I fall out of it, I guess. But it's still there. My core self is still there. But yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that life definitely may not turn out the way we always plan and and it's okay it really okay. is okay and the last thing that i could say to to all the listeners is that yeah maybe it took a little step of courage to to walk into to richard's home i wanted to cancel about five times <laughs> from three days ago till now it's honest um but i made it here but the reason I came is to just to go there with other people. And it's not even so much to give hope because I know I'm in a place that maybe, maybe there's not, there's hope, but I'm just in a place where I'm living, living the addiction right now. And I know how it feels. And I wish I could reach through the mic or meet all the people wherever you are and just give you a hug and say, you're going to be okay. That's all I could do for my younger self. I know you ask that a lot. What would you tell your younger self? And that's all I could say is you're going to be okay. Just keep going and join me on this journey of self-love finding self-love pretty powerful 
there's an empty chair at the table, listeners. There's three chairs around the table, Tom and my chair. And sometimes I imagine God pulling up a chair. And if he did, I and he looked at Tom, I don't know if he'd, this is my impression, is he would say something like this. And I've said this to people I visit with because I feel this impression. Tom, I'm not surprised this is where you are. Um, I'm not, when you left mortality, knowing you as well as I knew you, and seeing your life, this is, I, I'm not surprised where you are, and I'm not disappointed in you. This is kind of a, what I thought would happen in your life. And Tom, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're walking a really complicated road, and yeah, you may feel uh, I'm disappointed in you, or I've let you down, but I think he'd lift you up in ways that would surprise you. Um and I think he'd probably say, given all that you've learned, you know, it's good you're sharing your story, and it's good you have an ability now to help and heal others. And I think he'd say you're going to get over this, and he might give you a couple things of advice, but I think his, I think he mostly just wants you to feel his love and that, and that he's not disappointed, even though you might be disappointed. Um that he's not disappointed and he'd fill you with a lot of hope about your future. And that's the God I believe in um, that deeply loves us and, and is more patient with us in our mortal challenges than often we are. And he sees the big picture and he understands who we are and our divine nature as a spirit children. I mean, that's a pretty cool part of our doctrine. <laughs> um, and you know, that as being a father of mortal children, how much love we have for mortal children. So Tom Minch, um, thank you for having the guts to reach out to me, send me this um, letter, um, come on the podcast. I wish our listeners could see his eyes. Tom has had tears in his eyes, and I just look at his eyes a few times in this podcast, and I just really see a good man that has always wanted to do the right thing and has never like said, this is how I'm going to become a bad person or choose bad things, or this is the way I'm going to get back at God or rebel against God or follow Satan. This is not at all who Tom is. Tom is somebody who at the core is a good man who's always wanted to do the right things. And I think that's the, the Tom that I hope our listeners are feeling. I think that's the Tom that is a great father of these kids and the Tom that your wife fell in love with. I think you have a great life ahead of you, and I'm grateful for our Savior and for heavenly parents that love me, our listeners, and you, and meet us where we are and want to give us hope that we're going to be okay. I feel like saying in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, but I've never <laughs> done that in a podcast. So this is Tom Minch and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, Love. Mm -hmm.